Hey everyone, Eric here. Just before we get to today's show, I want to let you know that we're offering our podcast listeners a special 20% lifetime discount to the China Africa Daily Brief. Now that's the newsletter that Cobus and I produce every day that provides the most comprehensive digest of everything China's doing on the continent and now increasingly throughout the global south. In addition to the newsletter, you'll also get full archive access to the website and the China Africa Experts Network as well. To get that discount, just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe and use the promo code podcast at checkout. Once again, that's chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, we are about six, seven, maybe eight months away from the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation the reason why I'm a little bit vague as to when it is, because nobody really knows until about a month before oftentimes, and they just announce the date. But we know it's going to happen sometime this fall or maybe early winter in Dakar, Senegal. And that means right now, across the continent, negotiating teams are supposedly, one presumably assumes that they are getting ready their plans on what they want to do and how they want to negotiate with the Chinese and what they want to submit for their contribution to the FOCAC process. And this made me think about what's been going on over the past couple of years and the conversations, Kobus, you and I have been having with various stakeholders. I've had a number with diplomats in Beijing. We had Rashid Griffith from the excellent China in the Caribbean podcast on a couple of weeks ago. And some of our guests we've talked about in South America all say the same thing that when it comes to negotiating with the Chinese, oftentimes there's a giant imbalance, an asymmetry, if you will. And what it is is the fact that oftentimes the human capital and the understanding of China on the BRI or the, the country in the global south is really lacking and oftentimes not present at all. As Rashid Griffith told us in, in our Caribbean podcast, uh, literally, he said, there is no negotiating strategy. There is no China strategy. There's no team of people who have a background in Chinese culture, language, history, politics, to be able to articulate what it is they want from the Chinese in the negotiations so they can get a better deal out of even just the infrastructure arrangements, trade, you name it. Uh, this is a problem. But it's interesting because just last week, an article was published on the Natural Resources Governance Institute website. It was written by Hervé Lado, who is the Guinea country manager for NRGI, and also uh, Folashade Soule, who is the senior research associate at the University of Oxford. Both are leading experts in the field of African negotiations with Chinese stakeholders. We've had both on our program over the years to talk about this issue, they convened a workshop last year in Benin, and they brought together stakeholders from various African countries to kind of workshop out 
what they could do to improve African agency and negotiating strategies with the Chinese. And from this, they came out with three recommendations that I hope will inform our discussion today. Number one, build informed and comprehensive negotiation teams. This was the recommendation number one. The common pitfall they write for African governments is that they're disregarding interministerial coordination and ending up in a ratio of one African to three Chinese negotiations. So this is very interesting. So what they'll say is their recommendation is form within the government a China unit with Chinese-speaking negotiators aware of Chinese cultural specificity. So build up the China knowledge. This is something that you and I have talked about, and that's what's clearly lacking in a number of countries. Recommendation number two, trust national standards and address common information asymmetries. This information asymmetry goes to how are they being informed ahead of the negotiations and, and really kind of coordinating and also not deferring to Chinese standards for everything. So sometimes you want to make sure that your standards in your countries and really stick to that. And that's very, very interesting, the, the point that they brought up. The final point that they brought up involve legal and financial expertise where required. So they write, external expertise can be useful in areas where the African side is lacking capacity. Terms should be exposed to citizens and national oversight entities scrutiny to ensure accountability. So that transparency also helps a lot. And this is something we haven't seen that much, not only in Africa, but also in South America, the Persian Gulf and other global South countries where transparency remains a big issue. They recommend that by putting the contracts out, sunshine is a wonderful disinfectant, and we hope that we see more of that. So the work that Hervé and Folachade are doing is so important because it really helps to even the game between the Chinese and these smaller countries. And so it's great that they're having these workshops. But Cobus, one other area of information asymmetry is, well, what you do. Think tanks. I mean, we've spoken with a number of stakeholders in lesser developed countries over the years who say that they depend largely on U.S. and European think tanks and information, say, from the China-Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins or at the Boston University's Global Development Policy Center, but they don't have it domestically. And so their China positions are oftentimes informed by what's going on in the U.S. and Europe. Yes, this this is an important and, and, and complicated issue. One, um, I think one should make a distinction between you know between think tanks like um, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, for example, who who feeds directly into into you know knowledge production for for the U.S. government, and then institutions like like the China Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins, which you know m just uh, researches a bunch of data and makes it public. You know, so so their their database their loan databases, for example, isn't particularly shaped in any direction. You know, kind of it isn't it isn't serving a particular audience. It's 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 setting up as as, as comprehensive loan data as, as they can get and kind of making it generally generally kind of available to everyone. So so in, in, in theory, the you know that kind of resource would be able to be very useful for a kind of a, a, a think tank in a global south country. The problem frequently is getting the people with the with the training and then also kind of just just keeping that think tank running because even for global north think tanks the funding um, landscape at the moment is very constrained so it, that's particularly difficult for southern think tanks well we wanted to find somebody who actually is working in one of these smaller countries and does negotiations with the chinese who's actually living out what 
Hervé and Fulishade are recommending in terms of building the China competency and trying to break down some of the walls. And we went back into our database and we found our old friend Santiago Bustello, who is now back in Argentina. We first interviewed him on the program when he was a graduate student in Shanghai at Fudan University, where he is on the verge very, very close to receiving his doctoral degree in international politics. So we're hoping that that goes through this year. Uh, but he's now a China advisor in Argentina's Ministry of Development. And before that, he was a research coordinator at the China-Brazil Business Council. Santiago, a very good morning to you in Buenos Aires, and welcome back to the program. Good morning or good night, Eric and Cabos. It's really nice to be back here with you and discuss this China issues. It's wonderful to have you back on the show, and, and especially now in your new position as a China advisor for the Argentinian government. Before we get into the details of what you're doing and this idea of narrowing the information asymmetries and improving the Argentina's negotiating position with China, why don't we start with just a little bit of a broader overview of where we are today in Argentina China relations and Latin America-China relations, particularly in this era of the pandemic. So let's just kind of do a little introduction simply because our audience doesn't necessarily follow LATAM as closely as, say, Africa does. So why don't we just start with where are we today in the China-LATAM relationship? Well, sure. I mean, the basic storyline is that since the 2000s, obviously, the, the importance of China, firstly, in economic terms, grew up uh, consistently, mainly in that moment, driven by the so-called uh, commodity boom. And it was a period of high growth of the Chinese economy, but also of high growth in, in Latin American countries in general uh, due to this international environment. Uh, this also was uh, uh, accompanied in many South American countries by progressive or center-left governments that uh, pursued some redistribution uh, policies and social policies. So uh, it was a moment where the Chinese high growth and demand for commodities had a big impact on, on, on Latin American economic performance. Of course, over the years, the relationship, which was mainly focused on trade, growth and gained more complexity, uh, starting to diversify to investments uh, from Chinese enterprise, yes, and furthermore and more recently, uh, financing. And of course, uh, also by new initiatives in the political or diplomatic sphere. So undoubtedly, in the last, I would say, 15 years, uh, China has become a structural uh, force in, in, in Latin American economies in the sense that it's an unavoidable uh, economic partner. It has become the major trade partner of, I would say, the majority of uh, Latin American countries. It has become a very uh, important source of financing for many uh, Latin American countries, also for investment. And of course, it starts to diversify to other initiatives in, in the diplomatic sphere. So I would say that it's pretty clear that the relationship has growth and diversified in all the, all, all the important spheres. And as this relationship grew and, and diversified, did, did, you also, did, they, did these countries also see the growth of China competency among diplomats and among other kind of trade negotiators and other, other government officials? I mean, yes, I do believe that, I mean, our countries, Latin American countries, were not and still are not particularly prepared for, for this, for the so quick rise of, of such a big, important and different country. Yes, of course, in Latin America, we come uh, 
from a, I would say, Western tradition in terms of ideas, uh, culture, and, and, and this uh, type of things. So uh, the rise of China in that sense, of course, generated new complexities that I do believe that the local bureaucracies uh, have, have difficulty to, to deal with, still have. Let's dive into Argentina and what you're doing in Buenos Aires and tell us a little bit about the China-Argentina relationship because in many ways it does seem similar to an Africa-China relation in that it's a commodities-based exporting country. Again, huge uh, you know, size imbalance that's there. Talk to us a little bit about Argentina's relationship with China. Of course, yes. Well, Argentina's relationship with China in general follows the, the pattern I just mentioned. So we are, and you, you're right, we are mainly uh, commodity exporters. We export uh, basically uh, soybeans. That's the major part of our, of our exports to China, meat, some oil, uh, and then other related, I would say, other agricultural and mineral related products, yes. Uh, that's, I would say, the, the pillar of, of the relationship. Uh, today, China is a second trade partner of Argentina after Brazil, but it's in the last years uh, becoming also the first in some months of the, of the trade uh, relationship. Uh, Argentina particularly has, is a country that has uh, domestically several economic and political problems, so that also has, I would I would say has uh, kind of not released the, the whole potential the relationship has compared to other countries of, of the region like Brazil or Chile, which have basically uh, more trade than Argentina, have uh, also used better the opportunities of, of the Chinese market. So Argentina, I would say that in general, is a little bit behind uh, grasping the opportunities of, of China. But it's true that the, the, the relationship has, has consolidated. And of course, uh, the financing has been very important. China has, is financing several structural infrastructure works like railways, uh, hydroelectric dams, solar parks. So in that sense, it has become a very important financing source for these infrastructure uh, projects in a country as Argentina that has, uh, I would say, historical problem in accessing foreign reserves. Uh, it has cyclically uh, some kind of uh, debt crisis that indeed we're going through right now. Uh, so in that point, uh, China has indubitably became a, a very important source of financing. Uh, due to the macroeconomic stability in Argentina and other factors, we are still not receiving too much Chinese investment compared to other countries, for example, Brazil. Uh, this, I would say that it's one of the major challenges Argentina is, is facing in its relationship to China, which is to attract more investment and to stop doing everything through financing and, and start to, you know, receive some genuine uh, greenfield or joint venture uh, investment from China. Uh, and of course, as was, I was saying, this has been followed by the, the consolidation of diplomatic uh, relationship. We have now the strategic comprehensive partnership status with China. Uh, we are still not in signed the, the MOU for the Belt and Road Initiative, but I do believe that this is not going to take too long uh, to become a reality. So in general, what we have seen is a uh, grow, it's, it's a more complexity in, in the in the t 
ties, economic, but still, uh, because I would say Argentina's, uh, I would say domestic deficiencies in terms of macroeconomic stability, maybe political instability, we are still not, I would say, grasping the whole potential of, of having China as a, as a strategic or as a fundamental economic partner. What level of, of peer learning do you see between um, officials from different Latin American countries? Um, is, is, there, is there a movement to try and kind of work together across, you know, across borders to, to how, particularly to kind of to, to maximize complementarities in relation to Chinese, to Chinese financing, for example? You know, like that, that's one of the things that's, that's coming up in Africa now um, because there's a lot of talk about hooking the, the African um, continent free trade area to to the Belt and Road Initiative. So so there's this more discussion, or I think there will be more discussion about, about you know, how countries can work together to try and kind of maximize cross-border complementarities, you know, while saving themselves money. Um, so I was wondering if there's any kind of peer learning happening across the border in between different Latin American countries. Well, honestly, I don't uh, see that exactly. And I think that one of the important or big differences in the case of Africa and Latin America is that Africa has managed to build a more institutionalized uh, relationship through FOCAC with China, where I can uh, see that there is, uh, I would not say perfect, but more coordination between countries uh, in the negotiation with China. So uh, Latin America has a kind of a forum which is called Select China Forum, which will be like the equivalent of FOCAC, but it has not gained too much uh, importance. It, it, it exists, but it, it has really no no coordinating power and more at the, a more reduced level between, for example, Argentina and neighbor countries. I also do not see uh, any kind of... Uh, coordination or common uh, strategy or, or whatsoever. And this is also particularly not a very good uh, moment for Latin America to do that because the, the political forces that govern uh, the, the countries, at least in, in South America, are very dissimilar in, in their political orientations. Uh, so this also makes more complex to to coordinate and have a common strategy. It's also important to say that in the times, for example, when we would say in the 2000s where there were many center-left governments governing the, the region and it was there was more regional integration and coordination, still in the case of China, we, we didn't saw uh, some kind of common approach or, or, or talks to have a, 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 a some kind of coordination in this issue. So I, I do believe that in the case of Latin America, there is no, uh, I would say, almost no, no coordination at all. Well, that's interesting because a lot of people don't realize that China does a third more trade with Latin America. And when we say Latin America, Latin America, South America, than it does with Africa. Uh, the, the Chinese foreign ministry just last week announced that for the third year running, and even with the pandemic, the Chinese did $300 billion of trade with Latin South America compared to $187 billion with Africa last year. So strong trade numbers. And it's interesting that you would think that that huge volume of trade would, would bring people together to share knowledge and whatnot. But again, it seems like, just as Kobus kind of pointed out, there isn't a lot of knowledge sharing. There isn't a lot of coordination. And I'm wondering, do you think that that sets the region back? And does that set Argentina back that there isn't more knowledge sharing or is there another kind of scenario that I'd like to get your feedback on is there's not much knowledge to share because there aren't a lot of people like you 
who have such a deep China background who are actually in government positions to do that kind of sharing? I do believe it's a little bit both you mentioned. First of all, my impression is that the, this kind of forums, in the case of, of, of Latin America, which is the CELAC and China Forum, it's more an initiative from the Chinese side that truly from the Latin American saying, you know, we, we, we should get together in order to have a stronger position to, to negotiate with China. So paradoxically, I do believe that it's, it's China has been more interesting pushing forward this kind of initiatives, uh, regional forums to, to, to sit all the Latin American countries together. So that point, I think it's interesting to to have in mind. And then I do believe that, of course, there is a lack of, of, of professionals uh, really specialized in China. I would say this is a common variable, although improving, but it's a common, still a common variable in, in, in the majority of, of, of Latin American countries, yes. And also I do believe that, you know, it's not only in the case of China, you know, Latin America had or still has a uh, you know, considerable difficulties in, in, in articulating some kind of regional economic project. So you have different initiatives that uh, superpose. Uh, you have Mercosur, you have the Pacific Alliance, the, the, the Mexico is more, of course, integrated to the uh, NAFTA. So it's very difficult beyond China, I would say, to, to for Latin American countries to, to have uh, some kind of coordination or regional integration, yes? And uh, initiatives usually go forward a couple of years, but then, you know, there is a change in the political government in some countries and it goes back. And, and, and I would say that that's a major, major barrier for, for having a common approach in general and also in, in the case of China. So now that you're working, you know, as a China expert in in the ministry, um, what are what are some of the misperceptions among your colleagues that, that you have to correct? And like, what what are the, some of the kind of ideas about China that you see among among colleagues in the ministry? Well, it's um, difficult to say. One of the things I I I, I believe it's it's in we can see it's pretty common. It's the idea that, of course, there's a lack of knowledge, but the idea that China will come and give us a lot of money or a lot of investment and it will, you know, transform the country automatically. And indeed, you know, when you start to, to, to work on projects and, and negotiate and, and, and these things, it's all much more complex. Yes, and it takes more time. And, and you know, uh, I do believe that China also, on the other side, is getting a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, cautious about what to finance, where to invest, uh, and, and and that makes that, you know, you have to be very clear on which are your strategic projects, what are the characteristics, the technical questions and the technical problems, and I do believe that it's important to have a very clear, uh, defined uh project to, to go to, to, to negotiate with China. I would say that this is a common misconception. And also at the society level, I do believe that China still has some kind of negative image in, in many parts of society. Uh, this, the media and the Western media, of course, plays a very uh, fundamental role. Uh, and this also hinders some kind of possibility to, to go forward with some projects that I do believe generate some kind of uh, rejection or opposition 
I would say not because of they're from China, but it, it also doesn't help. So this misconception at the society level is also a big problem, I do believe. It's interesting you talk about how there's a perception that China is a big bag of money that you can just kind of go in and grab some money to get out of. The Boston University team who at the Global Policy Development Center has some fascinating data on energy financing, which four or five years ago was at $35, $36 billion a year, and last year fell to zero. Literally zero, not nothing. I mean, so that 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 money pipeline is constricted now, and it's not coming in anywhere near as much at all. And private investment is still probably coming, certainly in the commodities trade, but that public financing coming out of the policy banks is definitely drying up. So it makes me wonder, why does a country like Argentina want to be a member of the Belt and Road Initiative? What are some of the objectives of becoming part of the BRI? This, I would say, of course, my vision about the, the question. I do believe that the, 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 the rise of China, it's really transforming the, 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 the logic of the global economy, the, the dynamic center of the global capitalism is translating to, I would say, not only China, but also the South Asian region. I do believe that there are structural trends that are signaling that indeed, you know, the, 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 the logic of the, 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 the global economy is changing and, you know, Latin American countries should at least rethink or uh, reorient their, their development strategy, strategies to, to these changes. And, of course, I do believe that, you know, of course, the Belt and Road Initiative, there's a lot of written about it. There's a lot of things said about it. Some Maybe we... Many times believe it was a very, very big project. Then, of course, you guys know more than me. It has their uh, fallacies, flaws, and contradictions. But I do believe that it's uh, a, an important proposal that is shaping China's vision about globalizations. And considering the global trends, I do believe that Latin American countries should uh, start to, you know, I wouldn't say pivot, but just to reorient some kind of... Uh, uh, strategies to, to, to start to integrate to this part of the world. So I do believe that there are structural reasons to for Latin American countries to, to join BRI. And of course, then you, you would say, well, there should be a, some kind of negotiation process, which is, okay, I will join BRI, what I will get. And that's where things get trickier and, and more interesting, and where you were talking about this negotiation, where you have to have a, a clear strategy, a vision. And, and, and so also, I would say, more basically, some kind of clarity of what do you want in terms of uh, domestic development and how to align these objectives with, with the possibilities that China is, is offering uh, in, in this case. So I would say that there are, there are important reasons to join, but of course this has, must be done with, with some kind of uh, strategy and also capability to negotiate uh, with, with the Chinese side. One of the one of the big you know trends in in Africa's relationship with China is is I think a lot of African policymakers is trying to push the relationship towards more agricultural trade and particularly there's a lot of there's a lot of talk about about Africa as some as a possible future kind of mass agriculture and particularly agro processing you know powerhouse. Um, I think Latin America and South America kind of is that powerhouse at the moment. You know, as you know, Brazil, for example, the massive um, producer of, of agricultural commodities. Um, what what are some of the what are some of the things or some of the lessons that Africa should learn from from South America in 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 this kind of development? And then, what are some of the pitfalls from South America that they should try and avoid? 
Well, I do believe that all the agricultural, uh, agribusiness sector is, is really, uh, it has an, an important potential. I would say that in order to maximize, you know, the, 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 the exports or, or this, uh, the potential of the sector with China, I would just work from the beginning, kind of articulating some kind of, uh, you know, all the supply chain of the agricultural product in order to, from the beginning, try to add value and not just support the, the, the soybeans or the, or the iron ore or, or, or whatsoever and try to, I would, I, I'm not asking for just very complex things, but just start to add a little bit of value where it's possible uh, and, and, and in that sense gain some, some more revenue, basically. So, uh, there's a big potential the Chinese market. I, I do believe it will continue to demand uh, many commodities for its growth, the increasing domestic market, uh, raising uh, purchasing power of, of the population. Uh, there's an opportunity. But I do believe that this it has to be uh, uh, worked from the dom at the domestic level, basically trying to maximize uh, the the supply chains and, and, and the value added of these products, and also in where it's possible, also to 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 give priority to local enterprise to build some kind of national champions in some uh, sectors, agricultural sectors, in order that this trade, of course, can be done with a Chinese enterprise or joint venture, but to have some kind of uh, national enterprises also uh, participating from from this. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa-China Reporting Project at the Witts University Journalism Department in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Witts China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za. Let's turn our attention to politics now. I mean, you alluded in one of your earlier points that the, the growth of the Chinese economy represents a shift in the global trading order. That's of paramount concern today in places like Washington, London, Berlin, and Paris, who feel that the Chinese want to restructure the global trading order in its favor at the expense of the U.S. and European-led order. What's the view from where you are in terms of China's role in the global arena and also the concerns expressed by the United States in particular. I would say it again. I do believe that, you know, the rise of China or how you want to call it, it's indeed a fundamental change in the logic, not only of trade, but of global capitalism. Yes, I do believe that this is all, I mean, unless something really unexpected happens, which is totally possible, I do believe this is a structural trend that, I mean, it goes probably beyond uh, the, 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 what, what countries can do in some kind of way. I do believe that there's also not kind of so, so, such a planned strategy to change the global order and, and that kind of things. I do believe that China is still concentrating their efforts in its domestic development. They still have so many imbalances, problems. They're dealing with them pretty good. Uh, and of course, while they do this, they improve their integration to the global economy, they win some kind of maneuver margins to, to operate in the international sphere. I'm not saying there is no strategy, but I don't think there is some kind of well-planned strategy from Beijing in order to transform the global system and trade to replace the hegemony of the West. I mean, I don't, I don't think it works uh, 
not only in the case of China. So when you hear the Americans really hysterical, I mean, it is, there's no other way to describe it when coming out of Capitol Hill and what, uh, what the Secretary of State is saying and whatnot, you're just, you're disregarding a lot of that, saying, you know, okay, it's just, this is going to happen, it's a structural adjustment, but it doesn't cause the same level of concern to you in Argentina as it, say, does in Washington. Well, I, I mean, I do believe that, that there's fundamental misconceptions in, in how the U.S. is seeing its its place in the world, you know, and, and particularly with China. So I do believe that there, there is a problem there, uh, which is not only, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not an expert and this is just my opinion, but I do believe that there is a, some kind of limitation, not only from the political leaders regarding the place of the U.S. in the international system, but also from American society. So it's very difficult, you know, to, to, to have a pragmatic strategy when you, you, you still have, you know, to, to, I mean, this, this, this kind of preconceived visions. But I do believe, yes, that uh, trying to, this idea of contain China or doing an alliance with countries to contain China, I do believe it responds to some kind of anachronic vision of the international system. And I'm not saying it's going to fail, I, I don't know. But I do believe it's not particularly you know, useful. Or I, I, don't, I personally don't think it will be particularly effective to counter what I think is a structural trend. One of the one of the spaces in which all of these tensions are playing out at the moment is in COVID nineteen mitigation and vaccine diplomacy. And we've seen in Africa, we've seen like tons and tons of of vaccines being delivered from China, like very big gestures, you know, of 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 you know, in in the name of self self solidarity. And then you know, like very like strong contrast being drawn between between the way that China is acting in relation to COVID and how the US and Europe is acting. Um, how is that shaking out you know, on, on your side of the Atlantic? How does it look um, in Latin America? Absolutely the same. It's incredible, Cabos, and it's, it's really surprising. You know, Argentina, uh, Brazil, Chile, Bolivia, and I, I, several uh, Latin American countries, they are just receiving the Chinese and Russian vaccines, yes, which is fundamental. I mean, you're, you, there's a pandemic, you know, which is affecting, of course, uh, the, the health and, and, and lives of people, also the economy. So I wouldn't be able to stress enough how important it is for a country to get the vaccines in order to solve as quick as possible this problem, yes? And of course, we know that the international level is not easy to get vaccines because, of course, you have to ramp up the production very quickly. There's not enough vaccines uh, in this moment for everyone. And I haven't seen from the U.S. leaders, from European leaders, of course, we're not receiving vaccines. Uh, we have no, 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 I mean, not even selling. I mean, we, I, I, I don't see here the, the Pfizer or, or Moderna. We had a deal with the AstraZeneca, but it's not going forward. So I don't see, but let's take you know, the facts aside, I don't see even at the rhetorical level some kind of leader from, from the U.S. or Europe saying, well, we are very compromised with the developing countries to get the vaccines. We think this is very fair. We should work. And then maybe, I mean, they, they, they do nothing, but at least just to say it. So uh, it's, 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 it's impressive. I mean, and this is not only in the case of the vaccines. From the beginning of the pandemic, China was sending me, uh, sanitary supply, health supply. Then you can discuss it was enough. It was just not very big supplies, but it was doing something. And, 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 and developed countries, I, I say that they totally miss and are still missing the opportunity. And this is also part of the misconception I was mentioning about how 
I do believe the U.S. is 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 seeing uh, its 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 international policy or, or whatsoever. Yeah, it's it's interesting you bring up this point because the U.S. has actually been very very clear. It's not that they haven't said anything; they've been very clear. Joe Biden last week told uh, Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador when he was in Washington. Uh, no, we're not giving you any vaccines. Not one vaccine is going to leave the United States for any other country. Instead, what they've done is they've donated $4 billion to COVAX, the Global Vaccine Alliance. $2 billion will be used right now. Another billion will be used in two years. And a fourth billion will be used in year three. So that's spread out over, over three years. Not a very powerful message coming from the United States. But interestingly, uh, just a funny piece of news. So President Obrador went to the to Washington, had his talks with Biden, or I think they did it virtually, excuse me, they, they did it virtually. And then uh, he turned right around and ordered 22 million doses from China. And what is so weird here is that I'm, I'm, I'm just almost, I'm, I've got my clock now counting down until when the United States will criticize China intervening into the Western Hemisphere, because the United States still has a sense of the Monroe Doctrine mindset that it feels very uncomfortable when China's in the Caribbean, in Latin America, and in South America. There is this weird paternalism and sense, and it's historical, it's historically rooted. But here, on the one hand, they turn away the the Mexican government on vaccines, and then the Mexicans will turn to the Chinese and the Americans will get kind of upset about that. So that is just a little side note there, but it's very interesting how direct the Americans are on that. Um, getting close to our time, because I know it's the beginning of your workday, so I, I, I do want to get a question in about Australia. There is a, a really remarkable thing happening in Australia right now, where the Australians took on very strong positions against the Chinese on the COVID origin story, on Huawei, the in, in the South China Sea. These are core interests of the Chinese. And in response, the Chinese have mounted an all-out effort to cut off Australia. So now all of a sudden, this month, there's going to be no Australian coal imports landing in any Chinese port. They've put sanctions on wine. They've cut off the student flow. Uh, you, you know, they're talking about shifting this massive iron ore business out of uh, Australia. This has actually been a big beneficiary to countries like Argentina and Brazil and South Africa because some of what they were sourcing from Australia, dairy and other commodities, is now being sourced elsewhere. But it really shows that if a smaller country crosses China in such a way that China is really displeased, and there's a long list of these countries now. We can just very quickly, let's talk about Australia, Sweden, Britain now is on that list because of CGTN. And then uh, also Canada is on that list because of Huawei and so and Meng Wenzhou and all the things that are going on there. From your point of view, you are in that vulnerable position that if Argentina takes a position that runs counter to a Chinese core interest, this is one of those sensitive core interests such as Taiwan, Tibet, Tiananmen Square, the South China Sea, Hong Kong, Huawei, COVID or something like that, there's a big price to be paid. Is that Does that factor into you're thinking, and do you see what's happening in Australia and go, you know what, we don't want to go there, so we're going to stay away from politics and we're going to accommodate China, or people don't really pay attention to that kind of stuff, and politics is just really not as much part of it? I mean, because of, you know, uh, of the, the place that, you know, I would say irrelevant uh, between Marx's place of Latin America and international sphere, I would say, and diplomacy, we are not too much concerned about that. You know, we, we are not messing in those kind of, 
of questions about, uh, I would say you, you mentioned it, and, and I do believe that uh, also China, in the case of Latin America, I would say it's being very, very comprehensive. I can mention Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro has uh, done so many things. I, I have not the list of things that he said to, could anger China from, you know. Yeah, it's incredible. He's really, he's like, uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's comparable to Trump and how aggressive he's been towards, absolutely, uh, towards the Chinese. Absolutely, absolutely. And, 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 you know, China has not taken any specific measure. In the country, the trade is growing and, and you know, the, the economic relationship is, is going on. So I don't see that in the case of Latin America. In origin, that in that case that, you know, we have to worry about these kind of positions, we have also to worry about not, you know, uh, angering the, the United States of getting too close to China. So in this kind of, uh, I would say, competition uh, scenario in the, in the global economy, I do believe that Latin American countries had to try to maintain uh, a way in the best way possible in order to just, you know, focus on their own interests, national interests and strategies and try to, to stay away from all this kind of uh, uh, political, international politics questions. Uh, uh, that's that's my vision about it. But I don't see any kind of retaliation from the Chinese side. I don't I, I don't see that you know this only in the case it, it, it exists. It's not only some kind of China's strategies. It's, it has been historically a common practice in the international systems. And in the case of China, at least in some cases in Latin America, I do believe that they, they have been more comprehensive, more understanding, that that more more patient that 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 we, we might expect. Coming back to, to your work um, in, in the ministry, um, you know, the, as, as Eric mentioned, there's, there's a lot of pressure on African governments to try and, and ratchet up their, their China capability and to get more, more China experts who actually work for these governments. As someone, you know, in, in, a, com in a comparable posi position um, in, in, in the ministry where you work, how would you advise them to go about it? Like, which, which kinds of people do they, do they need on their team? Well, you start the show uh, talking about this article about, uh, I don't remember the name of the author. Uh, the, the author. It's Hervé Lado and Fulashare Sole. Yes, so so I, I haven't read, but I, I heard what you say, and I do believe that it's, it's a pretty good diagnosis, you know. One of the things is, for example, he mentions as a recommendation is this of having a China unit uh, in the government for interministerial coordination. I do believe this, this will be a major improvement and step because, of course, imagine it's already difficult to have a clear strategy, and and you know, uh, if you negotiate like separated ministries every issue, you have you know very uh, uncoordinated and 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 uneven results. So I do believe that it's it's a very good advice to this idea of having just a coordination uh, unit for China relationship that you know brings together the, 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 the different initiatives from, from each, each, each ministry. I do believe that this uh, is, is a very important question. Of course, yes, you, you, you should have there some, some specialists on China, which also have to work very close with the technical or other, other uh, bureaucrats that you know, have more technical uh, knowledge about some specific questions, which are they, they, they might not know about China, but they have some kind of technical uh, knowledge about specific projects. So you have to match these two profiles of the things. So you need some people who knows, understand how China works, 
how China negotiates or how what the Belt and Road Initiative is. And, and you have to couple this with, with very strong uh, bureaucratic capabilities in terms of uh, technical knowledge uh, that goes beyond China. I would say that this, this is important. And also the, the article mentioned about this dependence on, on Western think tanks, which also I think it's... I mean, it's good because uh, I honestly think that, you know, the, the, the U.S. and European think tanks provide very useful and high-level uh, uh, information. That's, that's out of question. I do use them for, for, for get uh, my, my, my data and, and read and these things. I do believe that this is also more a, a China ta task. I do believe that China still has to improve its capability to build knowledge, information uh, about uh, its presence in the world, its presence in, in Latin American countries, to explain better to, to, to societies what they're doing, why it's uh, important, why it's beneficial, what, what are the problems also. But I do believe that this is a, a, a very important symmetry that China still has to, to focus on. Yeah, it's interesting because that knowledge sharing, not only as the article pointed out, you know, within a government, but even regionally, but also internationally. There is so much that's happening in Africa, in the Gulf, in South America, in the Caribbean, that I think people could benefit from just exchanging experiences on. And I'm, to be honest with you, I'm kind of surprised there isn't a conference of some kind to bring people like you together with other people, you know, the guy in the UAE and the woman who's in Jordan and the, you know, the China advisor for Durko in South Africa to get together even virtually or in real life to, to talk and share notes. And at the end of the day, I think that China benefits enormously in their negotiations by virtue of the fact that people don't talk to each other and compare and contrast what their experiences are. So I'm happy we've had the chance to be able to share some of the experiences in Argentina with folks who are focusing on Africa in the Middle East and, uh, you know, and, and, and vice versa. And I'm hoping that people in your neighborhood will also maybe even kind of follow what's happening in Africa, because I think there are some really important lessons to learn uh, Santiago, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Santiago Bustelo is a China advisor in Argentina's Ministry of Development, and he joins us uh, from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Uh, Santiago, you're quite active on Twitter these days. Uh, what's the best way for people to find you on uh, on Twitter and to read what you're reading and writing? Well, uh, as you mentioned, probably in Twitter, I just share some articles I find interesting and some opinions. My Twitter is Dr. Tabor, uh, which is just a, a nickname. Uh, you can find me there. And that's it. Normally, I just write or give some interviews in, randomly in some kind of media or, 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 or blogs. Uh, that I will share it on the Twitter. And basically, uh, if somebody wants to know something else about it, they can just send me a message uh, through there. I will be glad to answer. Fantastic. We'll put a link to your Twitter uh, in our show notes. And then hopefully the next time we speak with you very shortly, you will be, in fact, a doctor. We wish you the best of luck with your defending your dissertation at Fudan University. Uh, so we'll send you lots of good vibes for that. And we, again, thank you for taking the time to join us this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much both to, for inviting me. I was all throughout the conversation with Santiago, I, my, I just, my head was spinning because I was thinking back to our conversation last week with former Assistant Secretary of State Tibor Naj, and this the difference in tone between what somebody from the vantage point of Argentina, and again, it's very important, Santiago doesn't speak on behalf of his government, he's speaking in his personal capacity, but, and he, the, the sky isn't falling because China is changing the global order. 
And at the same time, what we've heard out of the US and Europe is radically different. And I think it speaks to the difference, the radical difference in the global South and their perception of China and the global North and its perception of Beijing. It is so stark. And we've seen this over and over across Africa where one African government after another just says very clearly, the fights over Xinjiang, Hong Kong, South China Sea, COVID origin, Huawei, these aren't our fights. These may be your fights, but they're not our fights. And we want to have nothing to do with it. And Santiago spoke to that where the relationship for him and the Argentinians and Brazilians and others is economic and development. That's it. They're not really interested in picking the same kind of fight of what Australia is doing right now. So I didn't get the sense that he was worried that they were going to cross one of these magical red lines and piss off the Chinese to the point where the Chinese take retribution simply because they don't care about the red line. And it's just such a different way of looking at this situation. This is exactly why, you know, I, I, I think concerns about uh, concerns about the, the rise of China in, in in the global north and particularly the the way that that it's frequently couched in terms of China is exporting authoritarianism I think that 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 talking point is not very effective because you know if like I think it's the same for for South American governments and and African governments they you know they're like you know what in the first place, we don't share a border with China, so we're not Vietnam, you know. And also, China makes the red lines pretty clear. So, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to avoid those red lines in, if, if you want to, and they all want to, you know. Um, so this is, so this is kind of thing of like, you know what, it's actually okay. Like, you know, at the moment, China might be scary later, but at the moment, they're not so scary because because they can, you know, you, you, can, you can control the relationship to a certain extent by avoiding certain issues. And I think for the, that's that's... That's what's not, I think, being communicated very clearly in the global north. I want to get your take in a little bit more detail on a column you wrote last week for the newsletter that went out to our subscribers. And you said Africa's position in the world isn't an accident of inattention. And this could apply to other parts of the global south. It's structurally determined in a way that feeds into a global economic system, one that until now happens to have been built around Western dominance. And so... To pick up on what you're saying is that the concern in the global north is not necessarily that it's China, which they are clearly concerned about, but it's because their hegemony is at stake now. Their power is at stake. And that's why in the global south, in countries like Argentina and South Africa, they're just not picking these fights because at the end of the day, their power isn't at stake. There's no hegemony to be lost. Yes, that's one thing. The other, the other, the other part of that same issue is that is that Western hegemony, of course, looks pretty nice for Western people, you know, because because it, it reflects their values and at at the best, you know, at, at its best moments, it it you know it 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 helped them to to impart the best of their values to other parts of the world, but it it's still that hegemony is still it still grows out of a certain kind of historical reality, and that reality is colonialism. Um, and you know, and before that, slavery. So, so Western hegemony looks very different from the global South than it does from the global North. Um, and you know, kind of at the moment, you know, I think I think a lot of that dark history. Obviously, many people don't dredge it up because the the current version of that hegemony has been has been the, the edges has been sanded off them to a certain extent. But it's still they still do come from a certain history, you know. And so, the the moment you start digging into it deeper, and particularly when you start 
looking at at kind of structural exclusion of these countries from certain kind of glo kind of global governance systems then the the line coming from china that this you know that that this system is inherently unfair that it's biased against the global south and that it needs reform you know you're always going to get a sympathetic audience from that because that that is also the reality the reality for many other global south countries and this might also explain why the united states for example has had really a terrible track record in signing up countries for, remember the Blue Dot Network or the Clean Network or the campaign against Huawei? Because when they go knocking on the doors in Buenos Aires and say, won't you join us in our effort to contain Chinese malign influence? They go, yeah, no, that's not for us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just, and, and that's going to be difficult to form any kind of coalition beyond the white world. Because right now the coalition against China, with the exception of Japan. And I, okay, that's actually not fair because the Quad is now a real legitimate coalition. And the Quad is India, Japan, Australia, and the United States. So, but when we look at the United Nations, for example, on these letters for that the United States has been kind of issuing uh, to condemn Chinese human rights in Xinjiang and Hong Kong, it's traditionally been North American and European countries that are signing up to these letters and developing countries have said, you know what? Not, we don't want any part of it. The Quad is a, is a different game now here in Southeast Asia and in Asia. So that does change it. It's not entirely a white thing per se. And the reason I bring up the, the question of white is because you made a very interesting point in a discussion that we had earlier where I said I am ambivalent about the idea of using the term West because the West was this concept of the United States and Europe bound by shared interests, shared values, and an aligned worldview. That's no longer the case. And, but you said something very interesting. You said what unites the West, so to speak, including New Zealand, Australia, is their whiteness. Talk a little bit more about that. I'm I'm coming to this from a from a South African's perspective, of course, you know, and um, but but it it does strike me that it's 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 interesting that that we're having a moment where the the discussions about the rise of the global rise of China is is coinciding with all of these discussions within these countries about identity and about race, um, and and about structural exclusion because of race, um, and you know I, I don't think that I don't think that's a that's a an accident and it's also not an accident that both of those things are coinciding with the rise widespread rise of of, of right-wing nationalism across uh, you know across Europe in in North America and you know to a certain extent also I think in, in Australia um, you know so, so so I think all of these things are, are happening at the same time and it's 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 interesting for me that that they are and and I think um I think the, the this is kind of struggle with white supremacy and you know because white supremacy obviously was you know was one of the key pillars of 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 the colonial the European colonial project um and so as so I think a lot of us are still kind of dealing with the fallout of 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 that that historical reality and the the rise of China as a non-Western superpower, you know, kind of throws all of those issues into high relief, um, and and in the process also throws the the relationship between Africa and the West into high relief, um, and you know, so so and I think that, that that's kind of where I'm coming from, you know, when when you know, kind of when I'm talking to, when I'm talking in that way, but at the same time, one also has to then take into account. Obviously, a lot of a lot of kind of complicating factors. One being the the very higher level of diversity 
um, of racial and ethnic diversity in in uh, the, these kind of Western countries, you know, and and to 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 the, the complicated, you know, kind of. Um, role that race plays there, not representing not only these kind of historical constructs of white supremacy, but also the kind of representing one of the most kind of com compelling views of what multiculturalism might look like. You know, so so it's it's a really complicated thing. But I think I, I think one one can't get away from from the role of race and particularly the role of whiteness in in the way that the West thinks of itself. Yeah, it's such an interesting discussion, and I'm really fascinated by those, that take on it, that I looked at the West in geopolitical terms, that is, you know, shared real politic interests, and you're looking at it in far more cultural racial identity terms, which is something I didn't consider. So I really, really find that very interesting. This idea that Santiago brought up of learning from different regions and, you know, not only within a continent, but across a continent is something that we're doing in the newsletter. We've broadened out our focus on the China Africa project quite a bit over the past six months, seven months, in part because we recognize that if you just look at what the Chinese are doing in Africa, you're missing a big part of the story because the Chinese don't see their activities in Africa in isolation. They see it as part of a much bigger agenda. That is what the Belt and Road is, but also there is just a bigger movement and play here. And, and what we see is look at the vaccine distribution. And this is one of the things we're tracking in the newsletter every day how they're distributing, who's getting them, how many are going to each country, are they friendly countries, are they not friendly countries, and the discourse that's happening along with it. Loans, trade, all of this is happening at a global level in the global south. It's been accentuated in many, fact, many ways by the tensions with the United States and Europe, whereas a couple of years ago, before this all blew up in the United States between the US and China, the Chinese probably would have been devoting a lot more attention to their engagement with, with the United States. But because those doors are closing now, they are turning that attention into the global south. And so that's what we're doing with our newsletter every day. So if you're not 100% interested in Africa, you are definitely still going to want to find out what's going on in other parts of the world. And we hope that you'll join our reader community. We keep the subscription price exceptionally low for the express reason that we want to make it accessible. It's just $7 a month for students and teachers, and $15 a month for everybody else. And we feel passionately about making information accessible to everybody. This is a passion project of Cobus and I to do this, and we really believe that information needs to be available. We do charge a little bit because it's how I make my living to do this. Cobus has a day job. I don't. And so we do have to charge a little bit of money for it, but we do hope that you will consider subscribing. Go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code email and we'll give you 20% off of a lifetime subscription. So that is 20% off an annual subscription. Just go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code email. So that'll do it for this edition of the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, feedback, suggestions, please feel free to reach out to us. You can reach me at eric at chinaafricaproject.com. That's E-R-I-C. And you can find Cobus at C-O-B-U-S at chinaafricaproject.com. We love to hear from you. Good, bad, and ugly. Please feel free to send us a note and tell us what you think. So that'll do it. We'll be back again next week with another episode. Until then, for Cobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. 
or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobas at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>